All right. Would you open your Bibles to page 658, or to the book of Jonah? How do I know what page your, uh, your book of Jonah is? The book of Jonah, which if you're using one of our Bibles, is page 658, and you're welcome to have it. If you don't have a Bible, I hope you'd take that as a gift. Um, but we're starting a new series uh, this morning um, in the book of Jonah, which is a fairly short book. Um, about two pages. And it's four chapters. It's 48 verses. So you can do it. You can read that one. And so I would encourage you uh, even to read it once a week (coughs) during our study uh, just to prepare yourself. uh, I would welcome that. Uh, Let me me start uh, the message with an illustration uh, from my own life. This is... um, I. Years ago, I mentioned this. Maybe you've forgotten. The worst thing I had ever did. Worst thing I ever did. Living in Virginia, we lived on a lake. And it was base housing. And I had a friend who didn't know how to swim. And uh, he was in the boat, and I was going to climb in the boat. We were going to go. We, we had a boat. We were going to go boating. But I was curious to know just how he would behave if he was stranded out in the lake. So before I passed the oars, I just nudged the boat and it drifted off. I mean, it was, this is a really bad thing. I'm not trying to... Wicked, okay? It was wicked. I was curious. I mean, I didn't push him in the water, but I just wanted to... It was an experiment. Well, in the moment I did it, you know, and just saw the boat, like, helplessly drifting out of the water in the face of my friend, who is a good friend of mine, I went and I hid behind the refrigerator in our house. There's a little gap, and if you could breathe in, you could fit. I hid from my parents because this was wrath-worthy, and my dad understood wrath. He could deal it with the best of them, and I was new, not in a bad way, not in a bad way, just I had it coming. Come-uppins were on their way. And so I hid behind the fridge. Now, it's totally unreasonable and totally... Like, what, what was the end goal there? Just play that out for a second. Was I going to live there for the rest of my life? Like, rot behind the fridge like a mouse? I mean, I had to come out and eat? I mean, what? there's no future in that. There's just no future. Nonetheless, I did it. This knee-jerk of, you know, what have I done? And then of the shame of kind of my act propelled me to run and hide. And the irony is I'm hiding from my parents in my own house, in their house. I was so confident that when I was going to be caught, uh, it would be the end. You may not even remember. Yeah, that's standard, right? The truth is, I was not met with wrath. You know, there's something about parents. When you find your children in certain dispositions, <laughs> you know that a different tool isn't necessary. You know, So I was caught. <clears throat> Had to go get wet and swim to my friend. But hey, that, needless to say, what I want to point into is this almost irrational way I went to hide 
from the very people who love me most. That's what Jonah does. I mean, this is, that's Jonah. And, and so it's easy to kind of think of Jonah as this ancient chucklehead who can't get anything right. I just want you to appreciate, um, this book was not written so that we can look down on Jonah. This re- book was written to describe God to us as we stand alongside of Jonah. Because we really do these things. We do these things as well. Let's start. I want to read a couple verses. We'll do each Sunday. We're going to do one chapter. So we're in Jonah chapter one. I want to read two verses. We'll spend a little time on the first two because they say a lot, and then we'll start to move a little bit more rapidly. So here's Jonah chapter one, verse one and two. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city." And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Begins by saying, the word of the Lord came. I want to point out that it's the word of God that gets this entire story moving. That God's word is, is a word of action. In a sense, if you think of just all of humanity and all of time, it's God's word that in, intercedes and interjects to bring, bring us to him. And this is one of these classic occasions where there's this city, Nineveh, that has become a, a, a wicked city. They don't know God. They don't worship God. It's, it's hundreds of miles away. They, they have their own gods and their own idea of worship. And, and this time they were notoriously known for their violence and their wickedness. Uh, and it's God's word that comes in and sets things into motion. That's the first thing I want you to see. And the second thing is, is that God is going to deal with evil. The entire story is built on the premise that God is going to deal with, with evil. And in this case, it's the, the evil of the city of Nineveh. But I want to say it because I'll say that in, in our present time, it's not all that uncommon for me if in a conversation with somebody who's not too sure what they think about God to say to me, well, you know a problem I have? It's this problem of evil. If God is such a good God, why is there all this evil in the world? C.S. Lewis wrote about it. He called it the problem of evil. Here we see, well, God sees evil, and he's going to deal with it. God's going to deal with evil. I mean, Nineveh is on the chopping block, so to speak. When Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, his message is 40 days before the city is destroyed. God sees evil. God cares about evil, and he's going to deal with it. Now, you may say to me, yeah, but what about all the evil now? All the evil that I see that's not dealt with. And I, I can't give you a great answer. I cannot, like, dissect the occasions around our very lives and explain why God is doing one thing and apparently maybe not doing another thing. But what I can say is this. This is what I can say. is The Bible talks about God as being a patient God and a forbearing God. God is patient. It says he's slow to anger. In other words, the word of God teaches us that despite our anger, the Lord is slow to meet it with justice. And we like that. That is a good attribute of God. 
So there is a sense of um, it's good that God does not instantaneously deal with evil or there'd be no one here today. No one even preaching. This would be an empty room. And we can say this. We can probably say this about ourselves. I mean, so this may not satisfy. In other words, there's, I'll never be able, no one will ever be able to completely divulge the full wisdom and knowledge of God as it deals with people now and the evil and the good around us and, and what's all happening. We're never going to know that. And so you may not ultimately be satisfied that by this. But I will say this. This is true about ourselves. We can probably admit this, that when we see evil done, we're all too ready for the Lord to deal with it. But when we do evil, we're all too ready for the Lord to show patience. You know that? We, every, when we see it on the news, we're ready for the Lord to smite. Right? When we do it, we're ready for patience. So maybe we can't understand, but at least we can admit we're probably not unbiased, objective observers who have a real sense of what ought to be done. And in this case, we see, as in many cases in the Word, the Lord does care about evil, and He is going to deal with it. And He's going to deal with it with Jonah. Oh, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, which brings up this, this next point that's very interesting, right? So if we know that God cares about evil, but he's long-suffering, and he, he forbears, and he's patient, and he has, he's slow to anger, then we also see something else happening here. The Lord is sending a messenger to Nineveh to tell them they're about to be destroyed. Why do that? Why not just smite them? He has to have a button that says Nineveh. It's a red button. Why didn't he just do that? I mean, if, he's, if this is really about putting it into evil, why does Jonah have to go there to do it? He doesn't. Why not? I mean, wouldn't it just be nicer, if, make a little more sense to say, a word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, arise, walk through the city of Jerusalem and proclaim an oracle against the city of, of Nineveh, declaring that the Lord will in fact be just because he cares and sees about evil so that you would know when Nineveh burns that it's by the hand of the Lord Almighty because he cares about truth and, and justice. Why not do that? That's a little more. Why proclaim the destruction to the subjects of destruction? unless there's still hope. I'll give you this. this. So in 2003, right before the United States invaded Iraq, I, I mean right before, the days before, I flew a few of the most unusual missions of my entire life. I walked out to my airplane and hanging on my airplane, instead of bombs and missiles, and I mean, I still had some of those, but next to them were these canisters. Actually, they were old napalm canisters that had been emptied out from Vietnam era. And in them were leaflets, little pieces of paper, hundreds, thousands of pieces of paper. And on my airplane were about six of these things. And I had, I was like a UPS man. I had to fly to different towns and, and, and villages 
in southern Iraq, and at a certain altitude, boot, drop this canister, and it would open up, and out of it would fly, flitter and fly, all of these little leaflets. And on the leaflets were pictures, explanations, saying something to the effect of, we're coming, you might as well surrender. It's hopeless. That's what they would all, that's pretty much what they said. And you had to be careful because you didn't want them to float into Iran, so you had to be at the right altitude. You didn't want Iran getting all involved. It happened. Not by me, but honest. But you would, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd, each town, I suppose somebody did the thinking, each town had a different message, but the basic message was, listen, it, it was this attitude. This was the attitude of, we can un- avoid unnecessary violence if at all possible. Like, you have no hope. The great war machine is on its way. Just surrender. Which is, in fact, what happened in most cases. That's what Jonah is. Jonah is a leaflet. Jonah is a leaflet. Why would God send a prophet to subjects of judgment unless there was still hope? This story is really about God. Verse 3. I want to read verse 3 all by itself. It deserves to stand alone. So the Lord says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This, I got to spend a moment. This is, to me, this whole story, by the way, is practically a work of poetry. And if, if you could see it, even the way it's presented in the Hebrew, it's magnificent, just the, the, how articulate and concise it is. But this is one of these moments that's just so exquisite. And you have to ask for your moment, by the way, who wrote Jonah? The author of Jonah. I don't mean the person who actually wrote it with their hand, but the, the, the teller of the tale must have been Jonah. I mean, the entire second chapter is a, pray, a prayer in the belly of the fish. Who was there? That was a pretty lonely spot, you know? So if you can think about it, this story is being told, okay, because you're going to think a lot of bad things about Jonah all through the next several weeks. And as we read this, you're going to think, good grief, this guy. What is wrong with this guy? At the end of the day, he's telling his story. And that says something because he gives himself no credit anywhere ever because he knows this is a story about God. And this third verse is so illuminating. Whoever wrote this wants you to know, wants you to know that there's no extenuating circumstance, no good reason or thoughtfulness that Jonah might have applied. Jonah has no decent excuse. There's nothing here of, why don't you just walk for a mile in Jonah's shoes? Or did you understand Jonah's background? There's none of that. It's this abrupt, concise depiction of radical disobedience. You don't see here, but Jonah arose and said to the Lord, Lord, why send me? I'm not a, like, like Moses. Moses has this long dialogue with God where God wins, but Moses is allowed to push back. You don't see that. What about Isaiah does the same thing? Jeremiah does the same thing. Many prophets talk to God. Elijah journeys all the way to the mountain of God because he has a beef with God. Jonah, the Lord says, Jonah, rise, go to Nineveh. Jonah rises, boom, 
he's gone. Opposite direction. Look at this map. We don't exactly know where, I don't like to say the word Tarshish, by the way, the T word. We don't exactly know where the T word is, but it's something like that. Okay? Jonah is not radical disobedience. What we know is we don't know exactly where Tarshish is. We think it's, we think, many people think it's in southern Spain, maybe. What we do know, and it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament, it's a real place, so it's not like Shangri-La. It's the place over the horizon, the great place where things come, sailors come from Tarshish, bringing exotic things. In other words, Jonah went down to the market and said, how far can I get away from here, and how quickly can I go? I'll go to the T word. I mean, there's, there's, there's just no stalling. There's not even a, and Jonah tossed and turned for several nights wrestling with God. None of that. No wasted time. He is absolutely efficient in his disobedience. All of this to get away, what it says in verse 3, to get away from the presence of the Lord. We'll come back to that. Let's read four through six. But the Lord hurled, the Hebrew, it's like throwing a spear or a javelin, just to give you a sense of a Zeus, a Zeusness about God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. But the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. That's so strange. So the captain said, came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, I, I, I want to... It's a strange image, right? There's this tempest that hits and there's a crew that's fighting for their life. It makes you almost think of the New Testament account with Jesus sleeping in the midst of the storm. And there is Jonah in the, belly of the, in the belly of the ship, right, fast asleep. In other words, how can you sleep at a time like this? And I don't know, I mean, I can't preach with great confidence. I'll suggest to you, though, just going... I think this is another sign that the storyteller's given you that Jonah is not bothered by his decision. He's fast. He's asleep in it. He sleeps fine at night. You don't worry about him. I mean, nothing's gnawing at him. He is not going to Nineveh. The captain, by the way, the, the crew of this entire ship in this first chapter, they're quite admirable. Uh, you you want to like them. But the captain comes to him, and he almost uses the same, notice he uses, the storyteller, Jonah, has him use the very same word that God uses, arise. Okay? Arise. Why, what are you doing sleeping? Get up and pray. Since I know he's not the only person who's ever run away from God, I can ask you this question. You know, 
when you're fleeing the presence of the Lord, how hard it is to pray to the very one you need. Here's a situation. It's clearly a divine storm. I mean, these are experienced sailors. These are seamen who, when the storm hits, pray to God, and they go to wake up Jonah to bail water? No. To grab the tackle? No. To do the shipley things that they do? No. To get up and pray. This, such a, this must be such a bizarre storm that in their minds it's registering something about this is spiritual. And I just think, I think in our lives, when this is, this is the double danger, okay, of disobedience. When we disobey the Lord, and when we head away, right, when we head to the shadows, and we're on our way, when the Lord wants us to go east and we go west, and we're heading, then it, the very one we need to call out to most is the hardest one to talk to. You know what I'm saying? There's this double shame because the captain tells him to get up. You don't, it doesn't say Jonah got up and prayed. It's pretty hard to pray to a God when you're in the middle of rebellion. When you need him most. I'm going to read seven to the end of the chapter just to keep the story connected here. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? They're kind of like shaking him, (laughs) like, Quick, man, what do we got to do? Is their attitude. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I mean, it's a great story. But I want, uh, I want us to focus our attention on the, just the exchange between Jonah and the crew. They say to him, who are you? 
And Jonah's response is very interesting in light of his behavior. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And then he says, I fear the Lord. Now that word Lord there, it's probably in all caps in your Bible. It's because it's the personal name of God. It's the distinctly Jewish name of, of God. So he's, you know, notice earlier, all of the crewmen were praying to their gods is what it said. Now what Jonah's saying is, is I am a Hebrew and I worship this specific particular God. Okay? It's not just this generic God. It's this God, not your gods. Okay? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. And then he call, he describes the Lord this way. The God of heaven who made the sea in the dry land. Just think about that for a second. What's the jurisdiction of the God of heaven who made the sea in dry land? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of the universe, is what he's saying. I mean, the God of heaven and the sea and the dry land. Does it seem a bit contradictory to you that Jonah could believe that the God he worships is the God of heaven and of the sea and the dry land, that he's the God of the cosmos, and at the same time get on a boat to run away from him? Does that seem contradictory to you? It's like hiding behind a fridge in your parents' own house. Where is Jonah going to go that's beyond the jurisdiction of the God of the universe? How, how do you and I actually flee the presence of God? That's the question. Because we do it. We do it. I've done it. Let me just say that. I'm just, I, there is this contradiction. If he feared the Lord, he says, I fear the Lord God. If he feared the Lord, why the disobedience? Doesn't sound like you're that scared of him. I just want to point out the way we have this ability to live a life that is contrary to the very things we believe. What I'm saying is, is in us, I don't mean that, I'm not saying you don't believe it or I don't believe it. I'm saying we, it's always hard to test what you believe, right? You're like, I think I believe it. I believe I believe it. Like, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's this, Everything that I can think about believes it, and yet at the same time it is within the capacity of a human to believe something about God and yet live radically disobedient to the very same belief. Somehow that can live inside of us at the same time. Those forces can be attention inside of us at the very same time. This, this knowledge of a God he fears, he's a prophet. He's a hero. He's mentioned in 2 Kings. He is, he is a prophet of God. He knows God. He's heard God. But belief's not a challenge for him. Obedience is a challenge for him. This contradiction can live inside of us, and we can do things, we can attempt to do things that are not even possible, Right? We can believe in a God 
and yet live disobedient from him and flee his presence as though such a thing were possible. You see, this is the way it manifests itself most commonly. People who uh, become convicted of something the Lord says that runs contrary to their desires. And so you know how you can mark the fleeing? A retraction from the people of God and the worship of God and the fellowship of God. You'll see people constrict. Their personhood just sucks into itself. You know? So it's, in, in other words, when someone's getting ready to make a dangerous decision for their life, they become least receptive to the very people and the very word that loves and cares for them. They're fleeing the presence of God. In, in, in my course, there's been a few occasions, not many, I'm grateful, but a few occasions where I've had to have a hard visit with somebody to say, listen, this is what the word of God says. The way you're living or the decisions that apparently you're making run contradictory to the word of God. What often happens in those occasions is that that person leaves the church. As though you can flee the presence of God? What does that do? Ironically, they often go to another church. As though the Bible that they use is somehow different than this Bible, as though the God is different. We have this ability to live a life that contradicts our very beliefs. I'm not trying to give it some rational explanation. I'm trying to explain we are spiritually irrational sometimes. And we'll run from a God even though there's no escape. And we'll run from a truth even though it's for our good. And we'll run from a fellowship even though their hope is for our best. We will run from the very things that are trying to offer us life and meaning and all, all health and all of those things. We will run from them because we will flee from God. I don't have a therapy, you know, you know, so what do I do? You know, I, this is where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Knowing the word of God, loving the word of God, enjoying the presence of God makes it so missable you come back. Right? We do in peacetime become the people that we are in wartime. So now, before temptation hits or before disobedience strikes, disobedience will strike, right? We're going to make mistakes. When all those things happen, you, we need to develop a robust faith that when the knee-jerk of the enemy is run, right? That's Satan. It's the message of Satan is run. When that knee-jerk hits, you feel in your soul, but I will miss God too much if I leave. You know, the enemy has a, a double weapon. Satan will say, run. And then once you run, Satan will say, well, you can't go back now. You ran. It's double shame. Go back. You ran. Here's the beauty is uh, God comes after us, right? As Jonah. Jonah ran and God pursued that's, that's the nature of God, right? This, God right now is doing to Jonah what he wants Jonah to do for Nineveh. Go after them. 
Warn them. This, Jonah's on the run, and God's pursuing Jonah as an act of mercy. Now, it may not appear merciful because there's a big storm, and he gets thrown in the water, and he gets eaten by a fish. I mean, that's rough mercy. Right? God can be rough. He can, but nonetheless, there's redemption in it. And there's a sense, the enemy, as you're running, the enemy to say, you need to run, and by the way, you can't go back now because you ran. Just think of all the shame. And the enemy will say, will tell you, the reunion with God is just not worth it because the wrath of God is there and the shame of God is there and all these things. God will meet you with honesty, but he will not meet you with shame. The reunion may be tough, but the reunion will save your life. Think in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. What do they do? It says they flee from the presence of the Lord. And they hid from him. Okay? We've been doing this for a long time. And the Lord comes into the garden in the cool of the evening. Where, why are you hiding? He says, why are you hiding? Why do you have clothes on? Did you eat the fruit? And from that point on, the Lord exposes the truth, but does not shame them. In fact, he is the one who clothes them at the end of the day and names them. You know, the scenario is different. There's been disobedience, and the scenario is different, but God's love is still present. I'm saying this to you because if there's someone here today who is in the process of finding the shadows where God's not looking, as though such a thing were possible, but we're not rational. We're irrational in our sin. So if there is someone here who's toying with that idea, and if the enemy's saying that your best solution is to run, I'm here to tell you the enemy's about to say, you might as well not go back because you ran. And I'm also here to say that God will pursue you, not to shame you, but to redeem you. The fish, Jonah was not in the belly for three days because it's the fish's digestive cycle. It's because the fish spits him out on dry land. And at the end of the day, there's thousands and thousands of people in the city of Nineveh who are subject to judgment and need a word of mercy. This is where where God would have us be, is people who, you know, there is no substitute in this life for not knowing his word and who he is. You know, you read the word of God and you know God. And there's a sense where the thought of God not being with you is just so bad, you have to go back to him. That's where we want to be because disobedience is common to us. But you want to be like David. When David's sin was exposed to him, he prays in Psalm 51, right? He says, Lord, cast me not from your presence. That's what he says. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Like the thought, the thought that this disobedience of mine might separate me from the presence of God. That's, we are to know God that way, to know that no matter what happens, God will pursue us and we can come back. After all, that's what Christ has done for us, right? God has sent, God sent Christ to an entire world that was fleeing from the presence of God. 
That's why Christ's name is Emmanuel, God with us. It was to bring the presence of God among the people to show that God, God's not sitting at a distance, violently angry, designed to bring wrath. God cares about evil, but he's sending a message to redeem those who would desire to be in his presence. If you're here this morning and you're fleeing the presence of God, I'm telling you, you're doing the very thing now that resembles God's definition of judgment in the future. Hell is absence from the presence of God. Why invite that on your life now? When he's a gracious God, forgiving and compassionate, slow to anger, because his forbearance exceeds even our own judgment. The fact that he's so long-suffering with the evil around us makes me think that maybe he's patient for you. Amen. Let's pray. As we pray, I'm going to read from Psalm 139. This is a passage of David. Here's what he says. Where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even darkness is not dark to you and night is bright as day for darkness is as light to you. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you've come. I thank you that through the work of the Son, you've sought out even the grave to save those who would call on you. Lord, I thank you that there is no escape from your presence. I thank you that when we come out from hiding, Lord, you do not meet us with shame. Lord, you meet us with honesty. You meet us with repentance. You meet us with holiness, but not with shame, Lord. You wash us. You've atoned for us. You've taken the blame. You've taken the punishment. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning for us in general, but also keenly, Lord, I pray, I lift up anyone in the fellowship who would call themselves now wayward. Who are being tempted to run from your presence. Lord, speak to them. Say to them, where will you go? that I am not already. And what will you do? Lord, I pray that they w- you would make the thought of them running from you a very lonely thought indeed. Lord, on behalf of the church, I pray that we would be holy, holy saints of God who in the most loving and possible ways would welcome people back. would embody the words grace and mercy so that in being like that we would incarnate your son. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.